I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. When Ernest and Joseph Gallo died in 2007, decades after their brother Julio, it put an end to a family saga that had stretched for the better part of a century. But the company the brothers founded is still going strong. To this day, it remains a very private business run by three generations of Gallos. And it's still the largest family-owned winery in the world today. A lot has changed in the wine industry since the Gallows first landed in Modesto. Not only the public's tastes, but also the impact of climate change, especially in the wine regions of California like Napa and Sonoma. On the show this week is Cyril Penn. He's the editor-in-chief of Wine Business Monthly, a trade magazine for the wine industry. We'll talk about the current state of the Gallo family wine brand and how it fits within the larger wine industry. Plus, we'll get into how California wildfires are affecting wine production. At the end, we'll be bringing in Barbara Bogave, who wrote this series, for a quick chat about how she researched this story. All that's coming up next. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana's diverse landscapes include dense timber forests and seafood-rich coastlines. And every step along the way, you'll find a business environment that's strong, diverse, and ripe with opportunity. Need proof? Louisiana is where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will soon put the first women on the moon. It's also where the port system delivers the most domestic cargo in the U.S., and Louisiana is home to the best workforce development program in the country. See what Louisiana economic development can do for you. Visit OpportunityLouisiana.com today. Cyril Penn is editor-in-chief of Wine Business Monthly. Cyril, welcome to Business Wars. Oh, nice to be here. What does Gallo mean in the world of wine today? I think everyone has heard the brand name, certainly everyone listening. But how does the brand fit into the larger wine industry? Oh, in in myriad ways. They're the leading family wine company in the world, really. They're the largest U.S. wine company. They have their fingers in a little bit of everything. The wine industry is very fragmented compared to other industries with lots and lots of players, uh, some big ones and lots of small ones, 10,000 wineries in the United States. But they're in a little bit of everything. They represent, I don't know, 20, 25% of all wine sold in the United States. That's incredible. But I'm wondering what that means both to the everyday wine drinker and to people in the wine business. I mean, you know, there's uh, certain brands have certain, well, different kinds of cachet associated with them. When you think of the name Gallo, um, well, it's, it's certainly evolved over the years. 
I think it's it's safe to say, but how would you characterize what the brand name Gallo means to the everyday wine drinker and to people in the wine business? Well, I mean, Gallo is, is you know, besides Mondavi, probably uh, the, the biggest brand that people think of in wine. And it's evolved over the years, obviously, from, uh, from a perception of uh, being more everyday uh, cheap jug wines you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago to uh, the position they're at today where uh, the Gallo brand extends kind of a, across all price points and, and uh, quality levels. The Gallo Wine Company has so many brands besides the, the actual Gallo brand itself. Um, they have wines in every price point and every style uh, from most wine producing countries around the world, actually. Having said that, I've heard Gallo described as a supermarket wine probably most frequently. Is that a description Gallo's trying to shake off or no? Well, I mean, I think, no. I mean, I, I, you go in the supermarket and, and there will be brands from Gallo that you don't even realize are Gallo brands. They dominate yeah. the supermarket shelves and then they're the category captains at retail. So, Gina Gallo, uh, Julio's granddaughter, runs Gallo Family Vineyard Sonoma Reserve, which seems to be aimed at a more, would you say, high-end wine market? I'm just trying to sort of put them on a, on a graph here somehow. Oh, boy. Uh, what, what would the price point be? Uh, you know, $20, $30 on up. Super premium, you, you could call it. Absolutely. And, you know, the Gallows have been in Sonoma, actually, since uh, the early 70s. But their holdings in coastal regions uh, have just gone up and up and up, and they continue to expand and acquire properties uh, that are more premium. You know, as big as Gallo is, and as much of the market that it has and the marketplace that it's in, you have a company that is incredibly secretive. I mean, they keep company information very close to the vest. What have you heard or what do you understand to be the reason or rationale for that? And does it stand out as unusual in the wine industry? Well, yes, it stands out as unusual in the wine industry because the wine industry is the most in, most open industry I've ever covered as a journalist, and I've covered computers and biotech and you know the energy industry and on and on. And uh, in the wine industry, people want to talk to you and they want to share their stories and they want to help one another. There's a sense that a rising tide floats mm-hmm. all boats. And I don't know what the uh, what you know how things originally came together many years ago in terms of uh, Gallo being secretive and not wanting to talk. But sometimes when, you, uh, when you're the leader, you have a, a target on your back. And I think this goes way back into you know, the early 70s when there were, uh, you know, the, the, the UFW was boycotting Gallo, you know, and, and, or, and organizing and all of, the, all of that kind of stuff. So that uh, way of doing business goes back to Ernest and Julia a long way. It's kind of in the company's yeah, DNA. Yeah. Even back to their parents when you get right down to it. Uh, you know, I mean, the, there's so much intrigue. We've been exploring that a bit on, on the Business Wars program. I mean, the, there was a sort of a family prohibition against talking about their parents because, you know, of how they died and, and that sort of thing. Sure. And then there was the whole lawsuit with the brother. Um, yeah. You know, there's a book right. called Blood and Wine. Uh, they've opened up a little bit over the years, I mean, but, but they've always had that reputation. Um, their spokesman for many, many years was a guy named Dan Solomon. He's retired now. Um, he lives in town. I know him. And uh, he used to introduce himself as Dan, no comment, Solomon. <laughs> hey, as a, as a journalist, and you talked about how you've covered different industries, why did you get into reporting on wine? What was it about this industry that sort of attracted you after covering the many industries that you've uh, that you've been involved with 
I was recruited. I got a call. Uh, I was covering the energy industry at the time, and and I was asked, "Hey, do you want to come do this?" And I said, "Yeah, well, I'll I'll, I'll think about it. You know, let me check it out." And I honestly wasn't sure at first. I thought, "Oh, that's you know, that's not hard hitting investigative journalism or anything like that. You know, it's wine. It's." But boy, it's been a lot of fun because the wine business has so many layers and different different aspects to it. I mean, it's it's agriculture, it's sales, it's marketing, it's you know, you name it, technology. It's it's involved in wine, and the people are great. Do you see any parallels with other industries that you've covered? I mean, you mentioned the energy industry, for example. Well, I think we were just talking about the how the wine business is. Uh, people are more open; they all want to share their stories. Mm-hmm. You know, covering other industries, people when they talk to journalists, they want to talk about their position, they usually have an agenda or they don't want to talk to you. They don't want to give away their secrets or whatnot. In the wine industry, people want to share because they want to help each other. There's a real sense of camaraderie and it's about hospitality. But not so much with Gallo, it sounds like. Well, I think I think that this is just the company culture that goes a, a long way back, but they've opened up quite a bit from the way it used to be. I mean, I could tell you stories. After, I, one time I, I wanted to do a story about a bottling line they installed and, and the, uh, the reporter that was on staff with us, uh, he had actually sold them the bottling line in a previous job and they still didn't want to talk about it. So it can be kind <laughs> of, you know, I have story after story of, you know, asking them, hey, can we do a story about such and such? And they usually um, will uh, say, well, maybe, well, maybe. And then it takes about a month for them mm. to, to slowly say, nah, we're not interested in talking to you. But, but. To their credit, they really have opened up. Um, it's Gallo's run by the third generation now, and they're they're a lot more. Um, they're out there in the industry. We just um, we just reported about a, a research seminar that was held last week, where one of their senior scientists was you know, attended and was very open about discussing her research. So. I guess one of the things that makes it possible for Gallo to play it so close to the vest, though, is the fact that this is a company that's vertically integrated, right? I mean. Um, uh, Gallo in 58 opened the Gallo Glass Company. They're making their own wine bottles. H- how big is something like that a part of their business, do you think? Well, I mean, that's a major piece of business. I don't know how, how what the capacity of that plant is off the top of my head, but I want to yeah. say they, at one point, were making almost 30% of the wine glass. Gee whiz. It's wow. not small. Um, but they also have a division called G3 that has seven divisions within that company that sells other things business to business in the wine business. So you've got corks, they sell, they, they sell capsules, uh, they sell equipment for bottling lines, they're in logistics. So they, they ship grapes to other wineries at crush time. About 30% of all of the grapes shipped in California are shipped by Gallo. When you consider all of these, I don't want to call them tentacles because that sounds um, a bit like a, like a put down, but on the other hand, this is an enormous company. I'm wondering, can you think of any other company in the wine business that has its hooks in so many other parts of the wine business? Is there anything to compare to Gallo in the wine industry? In, it doesn't sound like in the U.S., but anything globally? Well, I would say no in terms of the vertical integration. Um, and they really have a long-term view of things. There are other companies that are close competitors. Well, maybe not even close. Distant second, third, fourth competitors. Like, let's say Gallo's doing 80 million cases a year of sales. And there's other companies doing 50 and 40 and 30 and 20 like that right behind wow. them. But they're out in front by quite a ways. And they're about to get bigger because they, um, they're about to close on a, a very large merger 
uh, with Constellation Brands, where they're acquiring 30 brands and five major winemaking facilities. And that, that deal's been in the works since last April, but it's supposed to close next month. When you're a company as big as Gallo, I mean, I suppose you could say, what's the point in getting bigger? Of course, there's always going to be greater market share, more money. Who's going to say no to that? But also, there's this, uh, there's this notion that you can become top-heavy, too. And that can slow innovation. It can uh, make you vulnerable to being blindsided by those companies that are more nimble, that sort of thing. What, what is the advantage to being positioned as Gallo is, and do you see an endpoint here, or is it just about growth, 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 as far as you can tell? Well, their growth is about long-term growth. They're a private company. The, the wine business is very much a long-term business because just because of the nature of the business. You know, the, the production cycle takes three, four, five years just to get your first cash flow when you start a business, right? You've got three years to plant the grapes, another year to process it, finish it, getting it out to market, and boom, five years before you have any payback whatsoever. A lot of companies in the wine business uh, think more sh- – well, most companies think long-term, but some of the bigger ones, like their second – distant competitor, which would be Constellation Brands, although that's a big company because they're involved in spirits and beer, they own Corona, stuff like that. But those are companies, if you're a publicly traded company, you have pressure from shareholders to have short-term profit. That is not really uh, consistent with the wine business because the wine business is a long-term business. For example, in this acquisition that Gallo's about to make, they're going to acquire a lot of production capacity that they probably don't need yet but they're thinking long term thinking long term means that they need to add to that production capacity because they see uh continued growth dependent on taking advantage of prices where they are today not where they are tomorrow clearly but as you think about like say what trends are happening in wine today you've got to look at the here and now and you've also got to figure well what's this going to look like (laughs) five six seven years from now what do you see as the biggest trends happening in wine today, and how does Gallo fit into those? Gallo really feels a responsibility to bring new wine drinkers in to wine. I mean, there are a lot of people that drink alcoholic beverages don't ne- that don't necessarily drink wine, and there are a lot of younger people that don't necessarily drink wine. So Gallo offers products that you could you could call them entry level, if you will. You could call them innovative um, that are that are aimed toward new wine consumers, and at the same time, you know they're they're selling wine, you know, for collectors at the at the very high end as well. So it runs the gamut. But I think they're very much focused on growing the category. You know, when I think about wine and wine in the United States in a sort of a larger sense beyond California, but certainly California as well, there's a lot of tourism that's wrapped up with this industry too. And part of that is the expansion uh uh, trying to grow its their own markets, but also sort of trying to diversify a bit. Does Gallo play in that field at all? Absolutely. They have, I don't know how many wineries, 20-something wineries, and many of these wineries operate as separate entities, and it's all about the hospitality. You mentioned supermarkets. Yes, they have major distribution across the country in, in, in large chain stores and, and you know supermarkets and all of that, but they also sell directly to consumers who come to their properties and have an intimate experience with with the winery. They're very much into that, and especially now, um, what's happening in, in in the world with COVID and all of that, people are buying directly from wineries from their homes online. Speaking of current events, I know California sustained some fire damage, some very devastating fire damage this year. 
Could you provide something of an overview of the extent of damage in the wine region there, Napa, Sonoma? Oh, boy. Uh, well, I mean, in terms of acres in California, almost four, four million acres burned. In terms of uh, acres where in, Calif- in wine regions of California, it's almost three million acres. I mean, it's considerable. In Napa, it was considerable. I uh, ran a story today that outlines about 10 different fires and what their effects were. The, the smoke from the fires may, may affect the wines, and we won't know the extent of that uh, for some time. It has to do with the chemistry of wine, but uh, some of that uh, potential smoke impact you know, may not be noticeable for a few months. The industry's dealing with that. And it was also difficult, you know, obviously having fires after COVID, right? We, we shut down tasting rooms in California and they were just starting to open up and they were open, open to tasting outside, right? Because we all have outdoor spaces. So that was doing fairly well. And then boom, we had these fires and we had, boy, three or four weeks of smoke in my neighborhood. This obviously will have a huge impact on some of the smaller wineries. Does it have much? Of, does it make a, much of a mark on a company as large as Gallo? Do you believe? Yes and no. I mean, it affects everybody, obviously. Um, with Gallo, they're so big in supermarket distribution that they're doing better and better. Their sales, I'm sure, are way up this year um, because people are buying at retail. There was a lot of pantry loading that went on when the lockdown started, and people were buying lots and lots of wine. So a lot of a lot of the Tried and tr- trusted brands that Gallo owns are the kind of brands that consumers are gravitating towards right now. Some of the large wine companies are doing very well. I mean, sales, if you look in Nielsen track channels, are up something like 15, 20% year on year every week when we look at the numbers. Whereas small wineries that depend on tasting room sales and wine clubs, their visitation is way down. I want to go back to something you were talking about just a few minutes ago. You were talking about how uh, the smoke being a a devastating issue, one that we may not know the dimensions of for some time. Why is that such a devastating issue? Does this have to have to do with the chemistry of the of grape growing? Does it uh, of of the way that wineries operate? Or could you say a little more about that? So wineries haven't had to deal with the effects of uh, smoke from wildfires in the past in the United States very much. There have been some fire events, more so in Australia, they've had to deal with it in their wine industry there. The smoke taint that that can occur um, is very difficult to get rid of. Uh, Sometimes it can be gotten rid of through various means. Uh, There's something called spinning cone. There's microfiltration. There's things that you can do, but nothing's perfect. So a lot of wine, if it can't be fixed, will be declassified or destroyed this year. And we don't know how much of that will happen. Wineries are not going to sell bad wine to consumers. They just won't do it. Consumers are not going to. This is not going to be a consumer problem. It's an industry problem. Very interesting. They're not going to pass that along and try to slip it under. Um, no, nobody's going to put their brand at risk. Yeah. Interesting dynamic here. I, I understand that perhaps because in rosé they don't use the skins, what, you'd have more perhaps rosé next year or something along those lines? With the red wines, you know, you're, leaving the, you're leaving the wine on the skins to get that extraction. And you're right. There will be probably a lot of rosé made in 2020. <laughs> so maybe time to stock up if, if the laws of supply and demand stay in, stay in shape. Uh, be a whole lot more rosé. Probably be available at reasonable prices. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, are the, wh- what are you hearing from other winemakers uh, worried about focusing on uh, post-wildfires? Is, are we looking at a sort of new normal, what with climate change and everything? Or, or what, what, is the, what is the feeling in the business right now? 
I think that's a discussion that we haven't had yet, but that people are talking about that we're going to have to have. I mean, there's so many layers of complexity, right, to dealing with climate change and managing forests and managing this if it is a new normal going forward, which I hope it's not, but it certainly could be, right? So um, that discussion's happening. There's a smoke uh, exposure task force that was put together a couple of years ago after there were some fires, um, and that has gotten some research money. And winemakers are talking quite a bit. They're comparing notes. I was at a winery yesterday that is experimenting using um, an ozone treatment that's been used to treat fruits and vegetables uh, to Mm -hmm. get the ash off of grapes before they're vinified Mm -hmm. that may be promising. Um, There are lots of little tricks and techniques that people are trying, and they're, they're spending a lot of time talking to one another, sharing information, trying to solve things. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com slash support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. I'm old enough, I'm afraid, to remember when the idea of getting a California wine seemed both vaguely exotic and vaguely down market. Uh, You know, the idea was that, you know, any wine from the United States couldn't be as good as the stuff that you might get from Europe. So, I mean, and I'm I'm curious, where does California now stand? I would would think that right there, um, head and shoulders with the the, uh, international giants, right? I mean... Well, you probably heard about the Judgment of Paris that happened uh, in the early 1970s. And uh, that was a watershed moment because there was a reporter there. It was a blind tasting where California did very well versus the French. uh, And there were French judges that liked the California wines as well or better than their own wines. And they were very (laughs) upset to learn that they'd been uh, tasting California wines. I mean, that's already 40 years ago. uh, But we've we've, uh, certainly come a long way in terms of... uh, the recognition that California can make world-class wine. That said, there's great wines made all around the world. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. So if you were to say to some of your colleagues overseas, perhaps, uh, uh, talking about exciting new products coming out of, out of California, does anything stand out to you or just more of the good stuff? Well, lots of things stand out. Um, there's less tradition in California. Um, whereas, obviously, there's more history in, in Europe, for example. Uh, so they have uh, had a, a large head start on us in terms of uh, learning what grows well where and how to make it and how to make it right and make it well. And they have a lot of uh, regulations around that and tradition around that. And here, 
We're still figuring out which varietals grow best in which regions. And we figured a lot of it out, but there's still, there are still things that we learn, which is fun. A lot more room for growth and a lot more room for change. And Cyril Penn is tracking with it. Of course, you can check out Cyril's work over at winebusiness.com slash WBM. That's winebusiness.com slash WBM. Cyril Penn, thanks so much for taking time to speak with us on Business Wars. It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure being with you, David. Thank you. Before we close the book on the gallows for good, I want to welcome to the show Barbara Bogave. She researched and wrote this series. Barbara, welcome to this side of the mic on Business Wars. Hi, David. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Good to talk with you, too. And for those listeners who may not know, Barbara is something of a fixture on the public radio scene in uh, the Los Angeles area and beyond, way beyond. Uh, Barbara, it's good to reconnect. We wanted to close out this series with you because you had the difficult job of digging into the story of the Gallows. This is a family famously media shy and secretive about its backstory. So first off, how did you come to be interested in this story to begin with? Oh, you know, honestly, it was one of those internet rabbit holes. I was actually, I was <laughs> looking up and you might've seen this video on YouTube. Most people know it. The Orson Welles um, outtakes. Of oh commercials yeah, the infamous outtakes. Right, right. And that, you know, I was listening to those and then uh, that led me to some old Gallo ads for Ripple and one for Thunderbird that I'd never seen from the 70s that was kind of in jive, very disco. Uh And yeah, from there, I just I just went down the into the bowels (laughs) of the Internet and I discovered the story about the family dynasty and the the murder suicide and just things I never knew about about the the company. It's tough to get that image of Orson Welles out of your head once it's been introduced because that is truly epic to see him going. <laughs> Looked like he had partaken just a wee bit before oh, the cameras started far rolling. More than a wee bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Trying to be charitable, Barbara. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, the Gallo Company position on the events that were covered in the story. How, how cooperative were they as you tried to piece all of this together? The official company position is that the company was started by these two brothers, Ernest and Julio, in 1933, and they used their personal savings and a a loan from a family member to start this company, and their brother, Joseph, their younger brother, had nothing to do with it. And as far as the lawsuit's concerned, they put out a statement at the the time that said... uh, his charges were ridiculous, um, that they, the Joseph Gallo had obviously brought his countersuit in an effort to uh, coerce the winery to, to drop the trademark infringement suit. So, you know, so they took that position and then they don't comment on it. So this series is based on interviews. Uh, actual, it's an oral history project uh, on the part of UC Berkeley. There, there's an oral history hmm. A series of them on Gallo. And so it was people who worked for the company at the time. That's really interesting. And also Ernest Gallo uh, was interviewed for that too. And wow. his, yeah, his transcript was sealed until after his death. Uh, and then there are two major books about Gallo and this whole history. And, and the main one is by Ellen Hawks uh, and it's called Blood and Wine. And it's just a fascinating, unauthorized history of the Gallo company. You know, I think one of the darkest aspects of this, and you were just referring to the 1974 or so lawsuit involving trademark infringement and one of the Gallo brothers, but it's the deaths of their father and and mother that I think 
it adds a macabre element to this story, to say the very least. How did you get your information on that? First of all, I just want to correct you. It was in the 1980s, the trademark. 1980s. Okay, yeah, my bad, it, my bad. Which is, which is a long time ago still. Uh, and, you know, it's the, the whole series covers more close to 90 years. So it was yeah, a, right, it's a little right. hard to say what the Gallo Company's official uh, position on this is because there are so many parts to this story. Um, and, of course, as you say, the a, a a big part of it is um, the the murder suicide or alleged murder suicide of the patriarch and his wife of the Gallo family, uh, Joseph Gallo or Giuseppe Gallo. That was his Italian given name. And so you got a lot of that from newspaper articles that were written at the time. Yes, it was covered in the news. In the news, and then there are various accounts of it that have been told uh, by Joseph Gallo, the youngest brother, and then by Ernest and Julio. And I should say that Ernest and Julio put out their own, as told to, uh, official autobiography called "Ernest and Julio Gallo: Our Story," and that was kind of damage control for that whole trademark infringement issue, um, where they kind of put their line out on what happened on their side of the story. Mm -hmm. And the brothers all have very different memories of that time and very different ideas about what happened to their parents. And then of course there were, there was gossip on the part of many people in the area and that's referred to in both news stories and also in the deep dive research that these uh, authors have done on, on the Gallo family. One of the things that Cyril Penn, um, editor-in-chief of Wine Business Monthly, told us was just how secretive the Gallo family was and is uh, to this day about the company. And I'm wondering how much pushback you got as you were working on this story or what obstacles you had to overcome as you tried to recreate some of the events here. Uh, well, since the company doesn't comment on these long-ago events, it wasn't so much a pushback as these things will never be known. I mean, all of the principals have died that were involved in this story. There are eyewitness accounts, though, and then there are the conflicting stories that the brothers tell. And that was the hard part of this story. How do you balance the, the conflicting memories and what makes the most sense? So the, I would say that was the challenge. One of the more touching aspects of this story, I suppose you could say, was the relationship between Joseph and Julio, because Joseph sort of felt like he was, he remained connected as long as Julio was loyal to him. And my sense of it was, based on the reporting that you did, he felt ultimately betrayed by what happened to him in the 80s, no? Yes, definitely. I think, I think his, his family members would say that his heart was broken. Um, and, you know, these were, this was a very tight family up until that point, even despite all of the, I guess, the difficult things they had, they had gone through. And Joseph had maintained relationships with his brothers. They, they, they had Sunday dinners. Um, but all along, you're right, he was much closer to his brother, Julio. And Julio just had a reputation for being a, um, a much warmer uh, person. Ernest was a very demanding, very critical, and could really excel at humiliating people, including his his brothers and his sons. For people who want to learn more about the gallows, anything interesting you learned that didn't make it into the story? You know, the cutting room floor stuff, as, as we say? As far as the business is concerned, I mean, it's a fascinating 
story, the wartime part of this, which we told in part, but right, right. but a big part of it involved what what happened during the war with distilleries and the liquor industry, and they're trying to take over the the California wine industry. So that's a really fascinating story. If people are into spirits and the history of of alcohol in in America, I would definitely recommend they they look that up. Along the way, I know you gathered a lot of tchotchkes and other bits of memorabilia related to to the gallows. I'm wondering if people wanted to find out more, uh, other than just, just doing a raw dive online, is there any place that you would recommend that they begin uh, or perhaps uh, continue with this exploration of, of the gallows story? I would refer them first to this book, Blood and Wine, uh, by Ellen Hawks. But I found most interesting, I think, the oral histories of the Gallo Company, which are part of the UC Berkeley's digital archives. You just hear from all sorts of people who work for the company and, you know, on every level. And it's such an insight into that post-prohibition era and how a company starts from the ground up. I mean, this was before the, they hardly had anyone keeping the books, really. You know, that's what that's the kind of information you're getting for people who are right on the ground floor. And I bet your your listeners would be interested in that. Barbara Bogave researched and wrote this series on the gallows. Barbara, it's been great to say hello to you again. Thanks so much for taking time to, to do this. And thanks so much for a terrific series. It was really fascinating. Oh, thank you. And it's so lovely to chat again, David. Take care. From Wondery, you've been listening to Episode 7 of Gallo, Godfathers of Wine for Business Wars. Hey, if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review, and be sure to tell your friends. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. And to listen to episodes one week early, join Wondery Plus. You'll also find some links and offers from our sponsors in the episode notes. And supporting them helps us keep offering our shows for free. There's another way you can support the show, and that's by filling out a small survey at wondery.com survey. And don't forget to tell us which business stories you'd like to hear. I'm your host, David Brown. Michelle Lands produced this episode. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Edited and produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez. For Wondering. Hi, I'm Brooke. And I'm Arisha. And we're the hosts of Even the Rich. So I want you to imagine you're about to go on stage and perform in front of 30,000 cheering fans. You pop a cough drop, take some deep breaths, tell yourself, you can do this. And that's when your brother steps into your dressing room. He tells you the police are here. Either you clean up your act or you'll get arrested. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But you just laugh and say, good. Because the you in this story is Madonna. You're going to give the police a moment they'll never forget. Ooh, so what happens next? If you want to find out, you'll have to listen to the newest season of Even the Rich, The Making of Madonna. Follow on Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free.